Hey guys, and a warm welcome from a currently glorious North Wales to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, well into the latter half of the second series right now. I hope you're all well this week. I myself have a tiny little bit of a cold coming, if my voice sounds a bit funny. I hope you're all enjoying the sun anyway and getting ready for your holidays. Perhaps you've already been, and that's it until the next time. If you are going, then enjoy, and if you've been, well I hope you did enjoy. Thanks very much to everyone joining me here today. New friends and old pals alike, it all means the world and it's absolutely ace of you. And cheers also for the continuing kind and honest reviews of the show across the various platforms. They really do all help. And of course, to my latest Patreon supporters, that's Molly Smith, Michelle Hamilton, Metty Kongstead and Bethan Truman who's amended her patronage. Brilliant of you all to support and hope that the bonus episodes have gone down well, and the merch for some that will be winging its way to you soon. Patreon bonus episode number 6 will be released on the 1st of the month in just a few short days, so for anyone interested, there are already another 5 available, for a very reasonable contribution each month, probably less than you've got down the back of your sofa. Links to the Patreon page, along with the contact details and social media details for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, are of course with my show notes this week. Now it's an incredibly busy week here at the show because of various things, so I'll be having a week's break after this episode and coming back once I've caught up with myself. I have to explain, I'm proud of the show as you can probably and hopefully tell, and I wouldn't want to just churn out nonsense to be a filler. It wouldn't sit right with me. I like to research and put things how I like them, and July is a really hectic month. So I'm having a week out and then I'll be back, caught up and ready for business as usual. This week's promo comes from the Dark and Stormy podcast. It's a fledgling one from Down Under. Those Aussies bust out some fantastic podcasts, don't they? They really do. Dark and Stormy offers tales of horror, true crime and all manner of things that may put the willies up you on a dark and stormy night. And I'm sure plenty love nothing more than that. It's available on all good podcast platforms, wherever you get them from, and it's well worth checking out. I've listened in and enjoyed, and hope that you can also. The hosts are also active on social media and always welcome any interaction, and they can be found by looking up Dark and Stormy Podcast. Links to the show are as ever with my show notes this week. Have no fear. The Dark and Stormy Podcast is here for all of your horror and true crime needs. So, if you want to hear stories about killer kids, obscure serial murderers, catfish and capers turned deadly, and other dark and disturbing topics, be sure to find us on your favourite podcast platform. Thanks very much, guys. Dark and Stormy podcast there. Find it where you get all your podcasts from. Well recommended. So as I've said before, a belief of mine is that an episode is always as long as it needs to be. And I hope that you'll not find this episode this week too repetitive. And nor have I waffled on and gone right around the houses to bring you this horrific case. This week's was a challenge to write due to the relatively little information available about it which is really surprising to me because the crime is so terrible and it shows the height that an individual's greed and cunning can go to. It also shows just how senseless any murder is and to myself it demonstrates the height of arrogance. 
It took place in the East London town of Barking in 1992, and listeners should be advised that this week's episode contains details and descriptions of a crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. So using your discretion or please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we look back at a case entitled The For Sale Murders. XR3i Cabriolet, G-Reg, stunning red, with powered hood, all electrics, with Cosworth alloys and expensive alarm. Low mileage, just serviced, priced to sell at 7750 or nearest offer. Now there doesn't seem to be anything risky about placing an advertisement for something for sale in the local newspaper, does there? Nowadays more stuff is sold on eBay or Facebook sale groups. But back in the day, this was how things were flogged, and to an extent it's still a well-used sales area. But back in April 1992, for a 62-year-old retired bank messenger and his daughter, the aforementioned advert was to have the most horrific consequences that you could ever imagine. Retired bank messenger Matthew Mannerin was pleased that his advertisement and the cars for sale columns of the local newspaper had worked so quickly. The newspaper the advertent had only been out for a few hours when a potential buyer had telephoned the house to ask Matthew if the convertible Escort XR3i was still for sale, inquiring as to whether it had gone. Now not being a petrol head at all, and this is some years before I learned to drive myself, I wouldn't know whether this was a great car, whether it was worth the money, whatever. I don't have very much interest in cars, to be honest. Matthew told the caller that the car was indeed still there, and the caller said he'd call around in the morning to have a look at the car, expressing an extreme interest in buying it. 62-year-old widower Matthew took another number of calls about the vehicle that evening, the 23rd of April 1992, but told these that someone was coming to view it the next morning, and he was just about to get ready for bed, when there was a knock at the door of his home in Aldersey Road, just off Aldersey Gardens in the East London district of Barking. It was about 10.30pm at night, and answering the door, before Matthew stood a young, mixed-race male in his mid-twenties, dark-haired and goatee-bearded. The man apologised for the lateness of the hour, but explained that he had been the first person who telephoned earlier about the car, and as that he just happened to be in the Barking area at the time, he decided to chance around to the house and inquire as to whether it was too late to have a look at the escort. Now the vehicle didn't actually belong to Matthew, it belonged to Matthew's son Mark. Matthew was close to his children, his 26-year-old son and 24-year-old daughter Alison, more so since his wife had passed away four years before. And whereas Mark had moved away for a career in the RAF, Alison still lived at home with her father. Mark was an officer in the Air Force who was a flight navigator and as he'd just been posted to Cyprus to serve he'd asked his father to sell the car for him and so Matthew was only too happy to help his son make some money hence the advertisement. Helpful and easygoing Matthew told the young man that it was fine for him if he was in the area to have a look at the vehicle regardless of the late hour and he invited him into the house. A neighbour who lived across the road Hilda Fitch noticed Matthew and the man stood outside, looking at the car and discussing it, then both heading back into the house and closing the door. Now this was about 10.30pm. The next morning, the vehicle had gone. 
Six miles away in Hornchurch, Matthew's younger brother Derek was waiting impatiently for him. Both he and Matthew were keen anglers, and the two had planned to spend the day going trout fishing, but the normally punctual Matthew hadn't turned up at the arranged time of 8am. Derek eventually telephoned the house several times, but there was no answer. Four miles west of Matthew's house in Barkin, in Forest Gate, staff at the bank where 24-year-old Alison Mannering worked were perplexed when she hadn't arrived for work that morning. Alison, like her father Matthew, was extremely reliable and punctual. It was a trait that he'd instilled in his children and that both had carried into adulthood with them. If she was sick or something had happened, then Alison would have telephoned her colleagues to let them know that she wasn't coming in to work. Whilst Alison lived with her father at the time, it was an exciting time for her because in just nine days' time, she was planning to move out for the first time and into a new home with her fiancé, 30-year-old hospital porter, Gordon Healis. Now there was lots of last-minute stuff to do in their new house beforehand, and Gordon and Alison had spent considerable time around the place doing all of these last-minute jobs, decorating and making cosmetic repairs. The couple had been together the previous evening, where Alison had been measuring up for curtains in the new house. She and Gordon had said goodnight at about 11.30pm, and as he had headed home himself, Alison had driven back to her father's home in a mini-metro, which is only a ten-minute journey. So when Gordon called the bank office where she worked that morning to speak to her, he was surprised to hear that Alison wasn't there, and he wondered what could have been wrong. He telephoned the manor in house to see if she was there, but there was no answer. There was still no answer when he tried later on that afternoon, and there was yet still no answer when he tried again that evening. By Saturday the 25th of April, Gordon was that concerned that he had contacted Matthew Mannering's brother Derek, who himself had concerns by now after his brother hadn't showed up for their pre-arranged fishing trip and all repeated attempts to reach him by telephone had been unsuccessful. The two men decided that they'd go around to the semi-detached house in Aldersea Road where Matthew and Alison lived to see what was going on, but found the house to be in darkness and all of the curtains drawn, with both cars missing. Matthew's brother had a key to the house, and the two men let themselves in, but they realised that nobody was home. So baffled by this, and concerned, they left without further examination. The following day, after repeated attempts at phoning again, Gordon again went back to the house and still found it deserted. The XR3 i Escort and Allison's red mini metro were still nowhere to be seen. Now he waited on the doorstep of the house for a considerable period of time, but still nothing. By Monday the 27th, Derek and Gordon's concern had driven them to again go around to the house, and this time to have a thorough search, by now convinced that something ominous had happened. They returned to the house, opened the door, and turned on the lights to reveal a disturbing sight. To their horror, they found Matthew Mannering's armchair and the carpet in front of it, soaked with blood. They immediately contacted police. Detective Superintendent Mike Morgan from Scotland Yard's 2 Area Major Incident Pool and Detective Inspector Phil Burrows from Barking CID both decided that something ominous had indeed happened at Aldersea Road sometime in the previous couple of days when they arrived at the scene. They were confronted with the scenes of what appeared to have been a savage crime and evidence of this was noted throughout the house 
along with some bizarre clues that had been left at the scene. Aside from the heavily blood-soaked armchair and carpet, their attention was drawn to the kitchen, where spots of blood were noticed on the washing machine. Two cushion covers taken from the armchair were found to be inside, and again both of these were heavily bloodstained. Somebody had made a half-hearted attempt to clean these up because they were soaked wet, yet the bloodstaining was still apparent on them. The bathroom of the house, particularly the bath itself, looked to have been cleaned, but not cleaned well enough. There were noted several blood drips and splashes on the tiles around the bath, on the sink and on the bath panel itself, and in the living room were signs that there'd been a shooting. The door frame leading from the living room into the hall had been smashed, and an obvious but crude attempt to repair this had been made by someone using filler and paint, but they still couldn't disguise what happened. There were shotgun pellets still embedded in the splintered timber of the frame, and a piece of blood-stained wood was found in the bin in the kitchen. Also in the kitchen, police then found a note addressed to Gordon Healis on the kitchen table. It was written in Alison's handwriting and had been signed by her, but police instinct told the two senior investigating officers that this note had been written under duress. Somebody had forced Alison to write it. The note said that Alison and her father had gone away for a few days, but there was no explanation of the cloak and daggerness of leaving in such mysterious circumstances, nor any explanation why or where they were going. It was as against Alison's character as it could possibly be, and why would she have left Gordon a note on the table at her father's house, knowing that he couldn't possibly have seen it because he didn't have a key to the property? There was also a handwritten receipt on the table showing that a vehicle, a red XR3 Escort Cabriolet, had been sold for £7,750 cash to a Mr Sinclair. A search of the house revealed that check and building society books, an expensive camera and several items of jewellery were missing also, and checks with Allison's bank revealed that three withdrawals of £200 each time had been made using Alison's Barclay card. It was decided at this stage of the investigation to hold a press conference while scenes of crime officers moved into the house, and on the 29th of April 1992, the National Morning newspapers were filled with headlines about the missing father and daughter. Matthew's son Mark had been given compassionate leave to fly back to the UK from the exercise in Greece that he was on with his squadron at the time, and the press conference was held the same day that the story broke in the newspapers. Police would not be drawn on giving information away that they as yet didn't know about, and instead would only say that they were extremely concerned for Matthew and Allison, and that they had disappeared in strange and suspicious circumstances. Mark made an emotional appeal for the safe return of his family, saying, To my dad and sister, If you're there and you're able to do things of your own free will, then just give us a call to let us know you're okay. If there is somebody out there holding you against your will, then I would say they have nothing of value. You've got all that you want from the home. They have nothing that is of any value. The only possible line of inquiry that police had was to issue the description of the man seen talking to Matthew and followed him into his house late on the evening of the 23rd of April, and appealed for anyone who may know this man, tall, mixed race, and with a goatee beard and moustache, 
to come forward. That afternoon, a powerfully built, tall, mixed-race young man walked into Barking Police Station and told officers that he wanted to speak to officers who were conducting the search for Matthew and Alison Mannering. The man identified himself as Benjamin Lang, a 25-year-old Selfridges delivery driver, and explained that he'd read the newspapers that morning and realised that he was the man who was seen talking to Matthew that evening. He lived just a couple of miles away from the Mannerings and had telephoned in the afternoon after seeing the advertisement for the escort for sale in the local newspaper. Finding himself nearby that evening, he'd gone to the house on the off chance to view the vehicle hoping that the owner would be home. A deal had been struck and he'd bought the vehicle there and then for £7,750 in cash taking it home. He told police officers that when he'd left late that evening, Matthew and his daughter had both been there alive and well. D.I. Burroughs was intrigued by this man coming forward, and by now was sure of two things. He was sadly convinced that both Matthew and Alison were dead, and that he was looking at their killer, but there was no proof of either. D.I. Burroughs asked Lang where the escort XR3I was right now and Lang confidently told the detective that he had immediately sold the car on at a car auction in Enfield in North London on the 27th of April. He expected this to be the end of the matter, but he was to have a rude awakening when he thought that he could just get up and leave, because police by that time had evidence that had not been revealed at the press conference, and that made them very interested in Benjamin Lang. After the discovery that checkbooks and cash cards had been taken from the house, including ones belonging to Mark Mannering, who had confirmed these as missing when he'd visited the scene, every bank and building society in East London and Essex had been informed and to be on the lookout for any attempted use of these. On Friday the 24th of April at 12.30pm, a man had walked into the Nationwide Building Society at Paisley, and at the counter had attempted to make a withdrawal of £200 from the account belonging to Mark Mannering. But the teller, who was dealing with the customer, noticed that the signature on the withdrawal slip didn't match the signature in the book, and refused to hand over the £200. Suspecting fraud, the teller had covertly activated a surveillance camera overlooking the counter, and had caught on film the customer claiming to be Mark Mannering, and of him leaving the office after being thwarted. Police now had this film, and the man was clearly identified as Benjamin Lang. Lang was shaken when this was put to him, and he was questioned about it, but he regained his composure quickly. Knowing that they had him banged to rights about this, Lang told them that he'd found the Building Society book in the glove compartment of the XR3i, and admitted, It was among the documents for the car. I don't know how it got there. Okay, I tried to get some money with it, but that's all. They were both fine when I left them. This was enough to hold Lang on a charge of attempted fraud, and when a check of his background was carried out, a criminal past came to light. Criminal records held at Scotland Yard showed that Lang had previous convictions for armed robbery. They'd all taken place in 1987 where Lang had used a replica pistol to rob five different taxi drivers in the same evening, but he was about as successful an armed robber as he was a fraudster, and had been caught, convicted, and sentenced to six years' youth custody. 
He's been released in 1990 after serving just half of this sentence. Police had him here on film clearly back in his criminal career, but had he graduated back to robbery, but this time added murder to it. He was charged with attempted fraud and was remanded in custody to London's Pentonville prison. The auction company with who Lang had placed the Escort XR3i for sale with, for indeed he had sold it on immediately, told police that the car had indeed been sold using their site. Lang had placed the car into auction using his own name, which explained why he'd come forward at the time and declared himself, knowing this would be traced. A dealer had paid £7,600 for the vehicle, and by the time the auction company had taken their own fees away from it, Lang had been left with about £7,000 cash. So according to his story which he gave, he'd lost about £750 cash in value on the car in four days. This was considered to be unlikely, and police were sure that he was lying, but it didn't surmount a proof of a double murder. But what did seem more likely that a double murder had happened was when the dealer who'd bought the vehicle was traced, the car was examined, and the carpet in the boot of the car was found to be still damp with blood. It was found to be an exact match for the blood that had been found at Matthew and Allison's house, and it indicated that both the father and daughter had been killed, and their bodies carried away in the boot of their own car. Then a neighbour of Lang's came forward to say that she'd been given a camera by him to look after for a couple of days, and when it was produced, it was soon identified as the one missing from the manor in home. More evidence was to come to light when members of the investigating team searched Lang's home at East Ham Manor Way in Beckton, just two miles away from the Mannerin's house, and in a blue exercise book found in a bedroom, they found Lang to have sketched out a bizarre and convoluted plan for getting money, and disturbingly, this included murder. The notes in the book spoke of stealing cars, but then addressed the problem that Lang would face of being able to sell them on later without the appropriate ownership documents. To circumvent this difficulty, Lang had written down his plans to study the cars for sale columns of local newspapers to find a suitable victim, preferably elderly and frail victims, just like Matthew Mannering. He'd then pose as a legitimate buyer, and when the vehicle documents were produced, he would then kill the victim and make it look like they'd committed suicide. He'd even made a shopping list of the equipment that he'd need to carry out this chilling plan. It included handcuffs, bin liners, a crossbow, and a pump-action shotgun. So there was enough here now to firmly point the finger at Lang, and police believed that he'd put this horrific plan into action, but there was still no direct evidence of the fate of Matthew and Allison. Although it highly looked like it, police could not at that stage prove 100% that a murder had even been committed. With Lang behind bars on the charge of attempted fraud though, police went on searching for Matthew and Allison. The day after the press conference, a bizarre event occurred. A typed letter addressed to Mark Mannering was delivered to the Mannering house in Aldersea Road. Littered with spelling mistakes and grammatical errors, it read as follows. Dearest Mark, I know that you are very worried about where we are. I can't begin to explain the thought that has gone into Daddy and I leaving. It's been very lonely for Daddy since Mum died and all he does now is drink himself to sleep every night. 
I can't live with him in that state, so we both decided to have a break and try to forget the constant pain. The hyphen, sorry for the mistakes, I'm still a bit nervous, hyphen. Last straw was on Thursday night after we sold the car and Daddy was so drunk he fell and cut his chest. He is alright now though, and trying to forget the loneliness. I promise you Mark, I'm looking after him well. Mark, we took some photos, my sentimental jewellery, the car money, our bank books. I think I took yours by mistake too. Please understand the way we had to do things. It's hard but necessary for Daddy. I can't tell you where we are yet, but we are still in London. I swear to you we're okay. I left my car behind Playstow Station. You would have traced us too quickly, so Daddy said leave it. Daddy needs to be happy again, Mark, and I'll do it for him. Please understand, we both love you so much, and it's hard to ask you to understand, but try to for now. Once Daddy sorts out his feelings, and I feel better about the termination I had to have, it hurts too much to go into that now, but I may be able to one day face things like you do. We will send you photographs from Daddy's camera when we develop them. The letter was signed off with the initial letters of each word in capitals. Love always in God, Daddy and Alison. This letter raised many talking points. It was indeed believed to have stemmed from Alison. A check behind Playstow Railway Station indeed revealed that a red mini metro was there as the letter had described. Yet it wasn't in the style that she would have written a letter. The spelling mistakes and lack of grammar were unlike her. She would never have referred to her father as daddy. And she'd never mentioned having a termination to any of her family. Only to a friend at work and to her fiancé Gordon. Both of whom she had sworn to secrecy. It seemed to have been written not as some sort of sympathetic letter. Letting her brother know that they were both at least okay. It seemed more like a letter that was attempting to tie up discrepancies and explain in a way the scene that would be found at the house, such as the injury to the chest to account for the blood staining and the explanation for the missing property and bank documents from the house. The most likely scenario was that Alison had been forced to write the letter herself under duress or the information contained in it had been obtained from her by means unknown and then this written by another person. Police believe that this letter had been concocted by Lang, who'd given it to a sympathetic friend of his to post in the event of him being detained by police. On the 1st of May 1992, eight days after Matthew and Allison had last been seen, Benjamin Lang was taken from Penterville Prison and appeared at Barkin Magistrates Court, where he was charged with abducting them and further remanded in custody. As the background to the case was explained and the charge against him was read out, Lang shouted at the prosecutor, You're a liar, you know that. When news of Lang being charged with the disappearance of Matthew and Alison Mannering appeared in newspapers the following day, police received a message from a woman named Sharon Thompson, who was the girlfriend of Lang who lived in Greening Street in Abbey Wood, which is on the borders of South East London and Kent. She told detectives that after being out for the day the previous weekend, she'd returned to her home and found Lang there at her flat. He appeared tired and was dishevelled, sweaty and dirty, but explained this off by telling her that he'd been digging over the back garden for her. Detectives immediately converged onto the terraced house, 
where a neighbour of Sharon's told police that she'd seen Lang working with a pickaxe and a spade in the pouring rain the previous weekend. Sure enough, a large patch of freshly dug over soil was noted at the bottom of the garden. Forensic specialists erected plastic screens over the patch of earth to protect the site, and slowly, using the specialist excavating kit, they scraped away the layers of soil. Buried two feet down, they uncovered a black plastic bin liner. By the time they'd finally excavated, they found a grave that was just over six feet long, three feet wide, and containing ten plastic refuse bags in all. Police had just discovered the dismembered remains in seven pieces each of Matthew and Alison Mannering. The remains were removed to Abbey Wood Mortuary, where a post-mortem was to reveal the horrific fate of the father and daughter. Matthew Mannering had been shot at point-blank range in the chest, and Alison had been strangled. The bodies had then been beheaded and had the limbs removed, using what was later determined to be a Stanley knife and a hacksaw blade taken from Matthew's own toolbox. Following the discovery of Matthew and Allison, Lang was taken back to court and was charged with two counts of murder. News of the tragic discovery made all of the national papers and television news bulletins the following day, and perhaps the most memorable image from the many is of a heartbroken Gordon Healis and Mark Mannering laying a floral tribute to the father, sister, friend and fiancé that each had lost, with both of them failing to contain their grief. And very understandable that really, isn't it? Whilst detectives had made their discovery in the garden of Sharon Thompson's house in Abbey Wood, another team of officers were searching the areas around Lang's home near the London's Docklands area, which was derelict at the time, and they were to find a number of items connected with the disappearance and now sad murder of Matthew and Allison. A bread knife and two sets of handcuffs were found on waste ground nearby, along with a refuse bag containing items of jewellery later confirmed as belonging to Allison and other items of property taken from the house. Also found nearby, torn into eight pieces, was Matthew Mannering's driving licence but of the gun that had been used to shoot Matthew, there was no sign. But this was found when, after a lengthy interview with Sharon Thompson, she revealed that following the murders, Lang had brought the gun used in the murder to her home and had hidden it under her stairs, although she claimed to know nothing about what it had been used for. She admitted that whilst police had been searching the wasteland around the Docklands area, before the bodies had been discovered in her garden, she told Lang's best friend Mark Leslie about its location and he had moved it to a different hiding place. The weapon was eventually moved again by Lang's brother Peter who threw it into the River Thames. She'd come forward to say about Lang digging a garden when she'd heard he'd been charged with abduction, wondering exactly what he'd buried at the bottom of her garden. All three people were to admit to helping dispose of the weapon and Peter Lang led detectives to the stretch of the riverbank where he'd thrown it in. Police divers were soon able to find the murder weapon exactly where he'd described, a single-barreled, sawn-off pump-action shotgun. In May 1993, Peter Lang, Sharon Thompson and Mark Leslie all pleaded guilty to handling the murder weapon, and were given a conditional discharge, 
although a charge of conspiring to pervert the course of justice was left on file. Now I think they got off quite lightly there, don't you? In the months that Lang was on remand awaiting trial, piece by piece detectives were able to construct the full picture of what had occurred and the picture of the suspected brutal double murderer. They found an upbringing that would have suggested a polar opposite of murder, rape and robbery. 25-year-old Benjamin Lang was the younger son of a respected Ghanaian author and poet, Kojo Lang, and he'd done well in his education, gaining 10 O-level grades as they were at the time, and 4 A-level passes. His IQ was reported to be 150, just short of genius level, and he was offered a place at Loughborough University in 1986. He kept fit through badminton and kickboxing, was popular and had lots of friends and girlfriends. He dabbled in a musical career and played bass guitar, and really it could be said that he had the world at his feet. But this was all thrown away in arrogance, as Lang seemingly had no intention of using his obvious aptitude for lawful employment or working hard for a future. He believed that he could be successful in any pursuit that he put his mind to, and to Lang, the easiest and quickest solution to a rich lifestyle was crime. In January 1987, Lang had used a replica pistol to rob five taxi drivers of their evening's takings. In the same evening, a haul that netted him no more than a few hundred pounds that he barely got the time to spend. He was rapidly caught, and perhaps to make an example of him and to underline the seriousness of the offence, he was sentenced to six years' youth custody. It was hoped that this was just a moment of madness and a period in detention would help him see the error of his ways and get his promising future back on track. Lang served less than half of this sentence and was released in October 1990, but he was nowhere near reformed or dissuaded from crime. If anything, he'd set his heart on committing what he believed to be the perfect crime. He'd write note after note, list after list of what it would take to commit this filling an exercise book, and eventually, Lang came upon the plan to make money by stealing cars chosen from suitable victims that appeared in the local classified adverts for sale, killing the owners, and possibly making the deaths look like suicide. By April 1992, Lang had attempted this three times. He'd chosen three such people selling expensive vehicles, called up and turned up on the off chance that he claimed. With him, he carried a guitar case that contained his murder kit and the sawn-off shotgun. But each of these times, he'd found each owner unsuitable for some reason. Something had thwarted him each time. Perhaps he thought the victim to be more than a match for him, or he'd just lost his nerve each time. And then he'd contacted Matthew Mannering, and when he arrived at the Mannering house, he found an elderly retired man who was blind in one eye. To Lang, Matthew was the perfect victim. So it was believed that Lang had expressed interest in the vehicle to Matthew, for he was interested in it, but only what it could make him. He had no intention of paying for it whatsoever. And he'd followed Matthew Mannering into the house after agreeing to buy the vehicle. Covertly, Lang had removed the shotgun from the guitar case and struck in the living room. Matthew Mannering had been pushed back into his armchair and shot in the chest at such close range that the muzzle flash had burned the skin on his chest, and the wound was that catastrophic that the shotgun pellets had shredded his heart, instantly killing him. 
This was probably done hoping that the proximity would muffle the shot somewhat. And then as Lang then attempted to clear up the blood, which accounted for the cushion covers from the armchair being placed in the washing machine, it was likely that Alison was believed to have arrived home and walked in on the scene of horror. Not knowing someone else would be home, Lang had then fired into the doorframe to frighten her, and she'd frozen in fear. It was then believed that Lang forced Alison at gunpoint to write the bogus sales receipt for the Ford Escort to a Mr Sinclair, sign several blank checks with her own signature, and tell Lang her personal PIN number of her Barclays account. He then made her write the note to her fiancé Gordon explaining her sudden disappearance. Alison was then handcuffed to the radiator and savagely beaten, and Lang also got her to tell him intimate acts of her private life, it appeared. Following this, Alison was stripped, and although this was not confirmed, it was likely that she was raped and then strangled by Lang's bare hands. Her body was then placed into the bath and dismembered. Then Lang did the same thing to her father. The remains of Matthew and Alison were then packed into bin liners. They were in so many pieces that it took ten bin liners. The gruesome task done, items such as the bank and building society books, the bloodstained clothing and personal effects such as family photographs, jewellery and a camera that were placed into a plastic bag, all to lay the foundations that Alison and Matthew had simply gone away for headspace somewhere. Lang then drove Alison's car the six miles to Playstow Railway Station and abandoned it, then made his way back to Aldersea Gardens. Using keys that he'd taken from Matthew, Lang then let himself back into the house in the early hours of the morning, and then after a half-hearted clean-up, everything, body parts and personal effects, were then loaded into the boot of the Ford Escort and driven to nearby Wasteland, where Lang unloaded the bags and discarded them. Just a few hours later, after his horrifyingly busy evening, and after he'd attempted to obtain money from the building society, Lang casually picked up a group of his friends, and using the car that he'd just killed two people for, drove the group all the way up to Alton Towers Amusement Park in Staffordshire for a day out. Whilst here, he enjoyed a day out as if nothing had happened. He'd managed to detach himself completely from the horror and carnage that he'd committed just the previous evening. Police were even able to uncover pictures of him laughing as he took a ride on a giant log flume there. Just believe the mindset of someone like that. Unbelievable. But perhaps whilst it was driving back down to London that Lang began to consider what he'd done, not out of remorse by any means but because he'd perhaps decided that the body parts that he'd so casually left scattered on waste ground nearby could be quickly found and traced. They needed to be buried, and so over the weekend he drove back to the waste ground, loaded the butchered remains of Matthew and Allison once again into the boot of the Ford Escort, and drove them to the home of Sharon Thompson. Knowing that she'd be out for the day, Lang let himself in, and then despite the pouring rain, armed himself with a pickaxe and shovel, went down to the bottom of the garden and began to dig a grave. He took the shotgun and stashed it under Sharon Thompson's stairs, then began to get more and more careless. He disposed of Alison's jewellery on nearby wasteland, gave the camera to a neighbour for safekeeping and registered the car for auction in his own name. So for all of his best laid plans about committing the perfect crime, 
he left a trail of evidence that could and would directly point to him. And police were to see ultimately just how arrogant this man was. The trial of Benjamin Lang for the murders of Matthew and Alison Mannering began in court number one of London's Old Bailey on the 24th of February 1993, where he was to plead not guilty to both charges. The jury of six men and six women were, over a five-week trial, to hear the horrific details of what went on that evening at the Mannering house, the account that was outlined before. Prosecuting counsel Michael Stuart Moore told the court that Matthew and Allison had been murdered simply for the car. He told the jury, Perhaps the motive is so obscene as to be unspeakable. It may be you cannot believe that anyone would do, for the sake of a motor car and a few bank books, what I have described just out of sheer greed. What Lang did in order to get his way involved the destruction of a family. Mr Stuart Moore went on to tell the jury, Lang had set out to find someone with a suitable car. He then determined to kill Mr. Mannering. He did so in the front room by shooting him at point-blank range. An hour later, when Miss Mannering, a bank clerk, returned home from visiting her fiancé, neighbours heard a loud bang and a woman scream. The time could be pinpointed because Alison had left her fiancé at about 11.30pm to sh- drive the short distance home. Mr. Michael White, a neighbour of the Mannerings, testified in court how he'd heard a loud bang and a shrieking scream at about 11.45 on the night of the murders. Mr. White said, It was a very loud scream of fright followed by a very loud slam. It was most definitely a woman's scream. Earlier, another neighbour, Hilda Fitch, testified that she'd seen Matthew Mannering with another man looking under the bonnet of the Ford Escort Cabriolet, who in court she identified the man as being Benjamin Lang. Details of what had occurred that evening, as pieced together by detectives on which we recounted earlier, were then presented to the jury. After murdering Matthew, Alison had come home and interrupted Lang. He then allegedly handcuffed her, sexually abused and tortured her, forcing her to sign a receipt from a Mr Sinclair for the escort, several blank cheques, and to reveal her banking information. Mr Stuart Moore said, She was forced to reveal some very personal things about herself and her life to a tormentor. It may be she told him in order to save her life. Sadly that didn't work, for there was no way Lang was leaving anyone alive. Mr Stuart Moore went on. Alison's fate that night, and the ordeal that she went through, can be pieced together from a large number of terrible clues. She was strangled to death, but not before she went through some form of mental torture or duress. She was physically and sexually assaulted. Her hands were manacled to render her even more helpless than she already was. The prosecution then went on to describe how Lang had dismembered and disposed of the bodies and property, half-heartedly cleaned up the scene and made a hasty repair to the doorframe. He then set about making it look as though the couple had gone away for a few days to give himself time to sell the vehicle and distance himself before the murder came to light. He drew all of the curtains, left the note for Gordon Healis that he'd made Alison Wright under duress and removed both of the vehicles. Gordon Healis, giving evidence, told how he was concerned from the very next morning, saying, I've never known Alison to disappear without telling me where she'd gone. 
I was worried, I was thinking all sorts of things. I didn't know where she was. Gordon said that he and Matthew's brother had gone to the house and had a cursory glance inside, finding no one home. Mr. Healis said that he went back to the house again and waited for a long time on the doorstep, thinking that Miss Manorin and her father might return after a long weekend away. When they didn't, he met her uncle at the house again, and Mr. Healis said that they had then started searching the house. They described that when they were at the house on the morning that they'd contacted police, they'd found the note on the table, but said that the note was not written in the way that Miss Mannering would have addressed him, claiming, It started Dear Gordon instead of Dear Hun, and was signed Yours instead of Love. There was no way I would have got that note anyway, as I didn't have keys to the house myself. Alison would have known that. He then described them searching the rest of the house. We were looking for any clue of what might have happened. When we pulled the curtains open, we saw signs of blood staining on the chair. The cover was in the washing machine, stained. They'd also found this piece of blood-stained wood in the rubbish bin, and it was with all this together that they'd contacted police. Mr Stuart Moore said, When word reached Mr Lang that the police were investigating, his first thought was damage limitation. This is why Lang had come forward because their disappearance had been reported a lot sooner than he'd really expected, yet he had a contingency plan for this. He'd claimed that they were alive and well when he'd left them, gave his cursory story about finding the Building Society book and attempting to get money, and there was no way that murder could be tied to him, because a letter, purportedly from Allison, would arrive when he was in custody. Yet it was to be this letter that would ultimately lead to his downfall. When the contents were read out to the jury, the prosecution pointed out the extraordinary arrogance that Lang had shown whilst doing this. It was shown how this letter was a calculated effort to explain away the evidence found at the scene and the apparent sequence of events, but it was the closing of the letter that sealed it and showed that in no doubt it was Lang's handiwork. Mr Stuart Moore pointed out, He signs the letter, Love always in God. He's spelling his name, taunting us. It is the signature of a potential serial killer. How twisted and arrogant do you have to be to do that, eh? Lang was so confident of not being caught, he'd even signed with a variant of his own name. Lang himself gave evidence for four days in the witness box, during which he was taken through the different stories that he'd given to police as it emerged that he changed his story no less than three times whilst in custody. Firstly, just after his arrest, Lang had admitted to buying the car, but he told the police he left the Manrins in good health, and had admitted attempting to obtain money only when indisputable evidence was put to him. When he was on remand in prison, he heard that police were digging up his girlfriend Sharon Thompson's garden, and within minutes he was on the phone to the police requesting another interview. This time Lang told the police that he'd been framed by a terrorist organisation group named the Fijian Freedom Fighters, claiming that he knew too much about their organisation. He offered no explanation why they would have killed Matthew and Allison, whom Lang didn't know, to threaten him. He then broke down when given evidence that unnamed members of the organisation had followed him, saying, I received a phone call on the Monday. They drove me to some waste ground, 
They showed me the plastic bags. I saw a foot and some arms, he told the police. Lang said that four men put the plastic bags into his car and they all drove to Sharon Thompson's house in Abbey Wood. We went into the garden and dug a hole. We then buried the plastic bags. It was an absolute tissue of lies because the court heard that such a group as the Fijian Freedom Fighters doesn't exist. It was a figment of Lang's imagination. Lang had next claimed that he'd been framed for the murders by Mark Leslie, who was his best friend, Neil Phillips, another friend, and Frank Cohen, a car thief that nobody seemed to know. He said that Mark Leslie had confessed to him that Frank Cohen had murdered the Mannerins while he watched, saying, Mark told me what happened. The murderer is a monster. Mr Stuart Moore told the jury that Frank Cohen was nothing more than a figment of Lang's vivid imagination. Our case is there is no evidence that anyone apart from Lang killed the Mannerins. For Frank Cohen, we should read Benjamin Eco Lang. Lang was to deny that the exercise book that contained a master plan for murder found in his bedroom was just that, instead claiming that it was an idea for a crime novel. He told the court that his father, who was a Ghanaian author, had asked him for some ideas for a new novel, and Lang had wrote about stealing a car and killing the owner. His idea was to stage a suicide by sealing the victim in a van filled with carbon monoxide. Let owner call a friend from van on mobile phone. Have not decided if just owner or family will be in van, he wrote. Lang claimed, I suggested that the customer set up the salesman in a suicide setup, then sold his car and bought his business. It is not a plan for murder, it's an ideas notebook. I wrote down ideas for my dad's new book. Lang denied it was a shopping list of his murder kit although he admitted buying handcuffs that he claimed he'd bought for Mark Leslie. He said he knew he'd been implicated in the murder because he'd bought the Mannerin's car and had tried to use one of their bank books. It was a disposal list to remind me of things I had to get rid of, things that could connect me to the murder, he said. On the 30th of March 1993, the jury took less than four hours to find Benjamin Lang guilty of the murder of 62-year-old Matthew Mannerin and 24-year-old Alison Mannerin, and as Lang was unanimously convicted, there was such applause and cheering in the public gallery that Mr Justice Robert Limbury, QC, had to call for order. Matthew Mannerin's two brothers clapped, and the sole survivor of the Mannerin family, Mark Mannerin, punched the air with his fist before collapsing in tears his arm firmly clenched around Alison's fiancé, Gordon Healis. Mr. Healis also wept uncontrollably. Both men had attended each day of Lang's five-week trial and had sat in the back of the court throughout the tense three-hour, fifty-minute wait for the verdicts. Lang showed no emotion as Mr. Justice Limbury said he recommended that he serve a minimum of twenty-five years, telling him, I have no alternative but to recommend you serve a minimum of 25 years. Whether the Home Secretary will then find it safe to release you must be a matter for him. He should be on his guard. You are a dangerous man, capable of extreme violence. You are capable of deceit and dishonesty. You are utterly ruthless and have a clever and able mind. You even manage to turn on the tears 
when you described seeing a foot on the wasteland during your false story. Fortunately, the jury weren't fooled. Lang's family, who were given police protection in the gallery, also wept as he was taken away then by four prison officers. When a man in the public gallery shouted, I hope you rot in hell, you bastard, Lang turned round and gave a two-finger sign to the man. An appeal against his conviction was unsuccessful, and he was left to serve his life sentence for his horrific crime. His minimum tariff of 25 years is now up, and through research I wasn't able to determine if he is still imprisoned or he has been released. I know what I'd hoped for, spelled out here by Detective Superintendent Michael Morgan, who led the murder inquiry. He repeatedly beat Alison around the head and face. He tortured and raped her to satisfy his needs for power and control. He enjoyed having someone's life in his hands. The ease with which he dismembered the bodies of these two innocent victims was particularly horrific. He is an arrogant and calculating killer, and I am convinced he would have struck again. Undoubtedly. Lang was tested twice for insanity before his trial, and both times was found to be as sane as the next man, and I really don't think that he was insane at all. I do think that he was pure evil, however, and he would have gone on to kill again had he not been caught. And what makes the crime all the more senseless for me is that for all of his exercise book filled with murder plans and his murder kit and all that, he left a glaring trail of evidence to show just what a naive, stupid, overconfident killer he was. Perhaps he realised how difficult it would be to make a murder look like suicide. Perhaps in the heat of the moment, in a panic, he wasn't thinking straight and overlooked details that led police to him, such as using his own name to register a stolen vehicle at auctioning. This is not the work of a master criminal, is it, really? And then all of the tall tales and absolutely pathetic, unbelievable out-of-this-world lies to claim innocence at trial. Fortunately, he was caught and stopped imminently before he had the chance to shatter another family, which he undoubtedly would have done. And the arrogance of signing off a letter using a code of his own name. That isn't any kind of coincidence wording it like that, is it? That is twisted and sadistic. This is a monstrously evil killer one who deserves to see out his days behind bars, because someone who can commit horror as easy as this, and their actions afterwards, without a shred of remorse, are they really safe to ever walk the streets again? So is this an unfamiliar case to you then? For such a horrific crime, as I said before, there's relatively little information about it for research, but perseverance has brought me enough to present this episode today. I feel for the people who are still of course affected by this man's actions, Mark and Gordon and countless other people. I mean, how would you ever even begin to forget such horror? And I do cringe at the thought that a killer like Lang could now be back on the streets. What are your thoughts then? Having served his minimum sentence, would you be happy about him being released? Or should life mean life here? You know where to chip in with your thoughts? The discussion group is now up on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group and I'd love to hear your thoughts as always. It always makes for a good bit of debate and interesting reading. Also I'm about on the usual social media channels or you can leave the show a review or Patreon the show if you'd like to do so. And of course, if you don't already, the links are all together with the show notes. 
Plus, if you have a case that you think is suitable for the show and you want to get in touch about that, then please do so. I shall always get back to everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all a happy and safe week, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care, guys, and goodbye for now.